The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that wanted to be in Minnesota all along. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. It's good to be home, baby. We did it, Joe. A baseball team tweeted officially that they signed Carlos Correa. We finally have arrived at the end of one of the craziest offseason sagas in baseball history. Uh, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we did not do a, a sudden baseball podcast based on baseball news yesterday when the Korea news broke. But we decided to come back a little bit early uh, and do this pod for you here today. We are going, of course, to talk about the official. We saw it. It happened. The press conference has occurred. Carlos Correa is going back to the Minnesota Twins. Of course, we're going to lead with that. Then we have a special guest. Speaking of uh, number one overall picks, we've got Henry Davis, the 2021 overall uh, number one overall pick for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He joined us for a uh, lovely conversation, which we hope you guys enjoy. So you'll hear that in the middle of the show. And then at the end, we'll review some of the other moves that have happened over the last couple of days, um, including Brandon Belt and Johnny Cueto and Trevor Story getting surgery. But Jake, we begin in Minnesota where Carlos Correa has put on you know, normally I make fun of the reintroductory press conferences, like when Brandon Nimmo put the Mets jersey back on. I was like, all right, whatever. But in this case, the Twins actually do have new uniforms. And so we got to see Correa in his new Twins uniform today as the Twins have signed into a six-year, $200 million contract with uh, vesting options that lead it to 10 years, $270 million. Jake, you're shaking your head a lot. What's going on? It has nothing to do with the uniforms, Jordan. Even if the Twins are the same damn uniforms, you still have to show what I will call proof of life. <laughs> that Carlos Correa is actually on the fucking twins after all that we have seen this winter. I I was I refused to believe it was real until I saw him breathing in the flesh, wearing a jersey that said twins on it in the year of our Lord 2023. No pictures from last year. Okay. I needed proof of life from this year and we got it. The last time we recorded, we said to you, oh, the Mets are probably going to get it done. And then like two hours later... <laughs> or whatever, the Twins and, and Correa had agreed uh, to a deal. And, yeah. and here we are. Yeah, it was, I guess it was, we record, recorded Monday. Monday night, it was like, actually, the Twins are making moves. And then by Tuesday afternoon, a deal was completed. Let's um, get the facts out there. Let's, let's just, get, let's get the facts out there. So, uh, we're, I mean, we're not, let's not review the entire winter because at this point, we've done so many podcasts on this. 13-350 with the Giants, great. That goes that goes to shit. Mets swoop in. Steve Cohen says, it's the last thing we need. This is the best thing. Okay, I'm in Hawaii and I want Carlos Correa. Great. Okay, right before Christmas, the Mets are like, oh, just kidding. His ankle does look a little problematic. Okay, great. We're gone. And then three weeks commence where it's just like, so are they going to figure this out or not? And then at the beginning of this week, the Twins, who at no point during this whole mess ever wavered on their desire to retain Carlos Correa, managed to find a deal that works for them, that works for Scott Boris, that works for Carlos Correa. And now he will remain in Minnesota for possibly the remainder of his career. Uh, I don't think so. Wow. No, you don't think so. Okay. It's possible. Possibly not. Possibly not. It's a six-year uh, deal. I think that there's a leg very legitimate chance that he leaves at the end of it. It's possible, although I believe that the options at the end are also mutual slash team options. So my understanding is they can keep him a lot longer than what this is. What this contract ended up being 
is basically, you know how when Bogarts and Turner and Judge and they sign for a million years and you say, oh boy, they're going to be paying 39-year-old Trey Turner $37 million. This is just the first half of that contract. And then, oh, we don't think your ankle is going to hold up. So the last half of the contract is like extremely normal and not very much. In fact, it declines as the years go on. You'll only be making like $10 million by the end of the contract. Uh, the point is, is that they found a way to make this work. The Mets at the last minute decided, okay, this is what we're offering. This is very important detail here. What were the Mets offering at the end? And reportedly, they were offering the deal originally, except only the first half of it guaranteed, meaning it would be a six-year, $157 million guarantee. And then every year after that, he would have to pass a physical at the end of the season for them to guarantee the next season. And you're wondering, that seems a little bit problematic because one, couldn't they just say, oh, actually you're not as good as we wanted anymore, so we're gonna fail your medical even if it's not the same thing. Like they could have just done that, right? right. That's why Scott Boris is like, no, this is a ridiculous offer on top of the fact that the uh, Twins guaranteed him $40 million more million. So not surprising that uh, once we hear what the final Mets offer was, that Boris was like, we can do better than that. And also not surprising that the Twins did everything in their uh, poss uh, capability to get this done. And I am thrilled for them, truly. Let's talk about the twins first. This is a, a story about staying true to the things you love. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was clear that this was love at first sight. Carlos Correa and the Minnesota twins. He came into town and the coaching staff, the ownership group, the front office, they were like, he is such a leader. He is going to take us to the promised land. And Carlos Correa said, that's cute. I'm going to go take $350 million. But the twins were not insulted by that decision, nor were they insulted when Correa decided to go to New York. They stood by, they knew the phone one day might ring again, and boy oh boy, did it ever. And I could not be happier for Twins fans who in the most roundabout, bizarre way have ended up exactly with the thing that they wanted. Yeah, and, and I think that <laughs> All the Korea quotes about, you know, if you want to, I'm the product, you got to pay for it. Like, those are all true, right? They seem a little harsh and they seem a little cold. Um, and if you want to create these narratives about how the loyalty of players, and of course, he was only there for one year, is as good as it may have gone for him personally and in the clubhouse and the chemistry and the leadership, whatever. We know the team didn't do that well, although that was not his fault. It, it was hard to totally believe, oh, okay, he is going to, he certainly was never going to take a discount for the Twins. And that was true because he agreed to two other deals. Because of this crazy ankle situation, the Twins ended up being the team that felt the most comfortable committing to him. And at the same time, I also think it reflects that the Twins were the team that wanted and needed him more than the Mets certainly did at the price that they were originally going to go for. And I would still argue the Giants, who, yes, they're still left with, okay, they, maybe they don't have a superstar, but like they didn't, they didn't already know for sure what Correa was about. And also they clearly were not given the opportunity to negotiate down after the Mets swooped in and made an immediate deal in the wake of their canceled press conference. But I also think that the Twins and the AL Central are in a much better position to compete with Carlos Correa than the Giants would have been had they signed him. Um, and so I think that's another reason why I think that, that this makes more sense for them than it would for almost any other team. And I think there's a little bit of awkwardness about this being the third choice. Yeah, right? there has it, to be. Sure. There has to be a little bit of awkwardness. But if things go well, that will dissipate in time, right? Everyone has exes, okay? <laughs> Everyone has exes. And he's going to go and he's going to say all the things about he's happy to be there. And I'm sure he is, right? He's still making a lot of money, way less than what he thought he was going to make, but he's still making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he's happy to be there. If the Twins win, we'll forget about that. If they lose... We'll be saying, what if he had gone well, to the Well, he might, right. I mean, it's there's so many what ifs, both looking backwards and looking forwards, because it's also just about his health. I mean, we didn't even know about this ankle thing until the very end of the regular season. Now, every game that he misses, every slight limp that he shows going into second base, now he's never missed a single game because of this injury at any point, right? So it's like, why is that going to suddenly happen now? I stand by the 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 bridge analogy I made on a recent podcast where it's just they're looking at the plate in his leg and saying, I don't think this is going to be looking so great in six years. And the twins saying, we don't fucking care because we need him right now if we are going to be a serious organization competing for for you know division titles, if not more. 
And that's why they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll pay you whatever. We, we trust you. And we, we believe that it, it is, it is all a matter of risk for everything. Every contract is that. Um, and I, I, I'm so glad that they got it done because, oh man. If I interview Carlos Correa, I got to stay far away from his feet, man. I'm going to be so afraid <laughs> of like accidentally stepping on Carlos Correa's foot. Can you imagine like opening day and Matt Ke- Max Kepler like trips on Carlos Correa's ankle and the whole dugout freezes and time stops. Right, and he right. It, is, it is certainly something that we'll be, we'll be following him. And I agree it's, with you to some degree. The most famous ankle in sports. Now. Oh yeah. Now it's, it's, which again was not, we had no idea that this was a thing. Um, and congratulations to his back for not being, for being out of the spotlight. So that's, that's big time. <laughs> Rare. Let's talk about Scott Boris. Mm-hmm. Scott Boris, Carlos Correa's agent does not lose often. And this is unequivocally an L. Now, there was a good article this morning by Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic mm-hmm. about this scenario and dynamic about whether uh, most agents agree that it's not Boris's fault, right? That he didn't necessarily do anything wrong in failing to secure a larger contract for his client. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. But at the end of the day, it's still an L. And it's an L brought about by Correa's leg, but it is it is a rare L. And it made mention of the contract last year the offer he got from the Tigers, that was for more money than he ended up getting this year from the Twins. Wouldn't that have necessitated some sort of physical? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. And that's why it's like some people are just like, oh, Boris was hiding stuff. It's like, well, he, you can't because he went in and did the MRI. And like that's it, They can share whatever they want. Now, clearly, let's talk about the Mets here, okay? Because the Mets angle here is... Steve Cohen publicly saying, I want this, I need this. This guy puts us over the top. We need another big bat. And in his excitement and desire to get Correa after missing out on him originally with the Giants, you know, rushing into this agreement before the medical happens, and then we, we know what happens after that. But I am fascinated by the Mets' reaction to this because, because they've had such a good offseason otherwise. Mets fans are like, ah, like that sucks, but whatever. And that's fair, but when you have the actual owner publicly saying this is something we need to put us to a clearly better than we were last year when you consider all the additions and subtractions and kind of what they've had it's hard not to look at that and be like well yikes does that mean like and there's no other obvious uh, pivot here it's it's it is a fascinating thing that, that only Steve Cohen is giving us the opportunity to speculate on and that is what makes the story so truly ridiculous there's no way to talk your way around that yeah right yeah he overcommitted he got too excited he said things he shouldn't have said publicly mm-hmm. and now he has some egg on his face he just has the f- good fortune of he has so much goodwill right now from yeah, the Mets totally. fan base that People Mets trust fans him. yeah there are so many Mets fans that are like ah, I trust Steve Cohen yeah. which is funny as if he's the one making the medical recommendation <laughs> On his leg, right, right, right. But, but at the same time, he still could have been the owner to override that. You know, that's yeah. the thing. There are medicals. We talk about how different doctors say different things. It is still the owner who gets to decide. I will take that risk. I am willing to go to this level and guarantee this much because I do still believe in Carlos Correa right now, and I'm not worried about it. And he didn't. He decided no. And that is where we will also wonder if Correa goes on to be, forget how good the twins are, if Correa goes on to be healthy and great, you know, that's what we will we will wonder. Now, it seems goofy when it's like, oh, poor Mets, their payroll's only $350 million instead of $380 million. <laughs> Like, yeah, their roster's awesome. So we can't go into, like, it's going to be a situation where it's like, oh, we have all these injuries. This happens with, like, the Dodgers and the Yankees sometimes where it's like, oh, no, you're, you're missing guys. It's like, you still have all of these amazing players. Like, sorry, I don't feel that bad for you. And so I, I kind of kind of feel that way if we if Correa's awesome this year and Eduardo Escobar is not good and Beatty's hitting 190 and Mets fans in June are like, oh, I wish we had Correa. It's like, okay, but like, you still have this amazing team. So just go win 100 games again. What am I supposed to do for the rest of the month now mm. that this is done? Well, this is the other big, big takeaway here. Congratulations to Jerickson Profar who Scott Boris can now spend an ounce of his time trying to find Jerickson Profar a client. I know Carlos Rodon told us himself that, yes, 
you can get Scott Boris on the phone. Yes, you can. And I do believe him generally. At the same time, I'm sure that this mess has taken up more time of Scott Boris's than normal. And Jerkson Profar, the top Boris uh, client left on the market, has just been like, yo, so can I sign now? Because uh, it's almost, you know, we're getting there, getting February, and I still like I'm a pretty good baseball player. So that also uh, makes me laugh. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it's true. It's 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 a weird thing. Anything else in Korea world you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say I am a little bit interested who plays third base for the Twins. You know, they traded Gio Urshela away. Are they going to go with Jose Miranda? Are they going to move Rise to first or to third? Are they going to trade Rise? Whatever. Um, and then the other thing I couldn't help but think about, particularly last week um, as the Mets stuff was falling apart, is the Astros are just chilling. I mean, they are the, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, that's a shame. Uh, gif <laughs> just you know uh, epitomized as uh, Jeremy Pena will be their shortstop for a while and listen Carlos Correa is better than Jeremy Pena uh, but at the same time it is very funny how out of the discussion the Astros are when even last year even last year we were like shouldn't the Astros just bring Carlos Correa back even if we believe in Jeremy Pena so I think that angle is also pretty funny to me my other takeaway is I I want to issue a formal apology <clears throat> It takes a big man to do this. Yeah. And even who, though I'm, who we I'm not to? that tall, okay, this takes courage. I would like to apologize to Farhan Zaidi and the San Francisco Giants. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because based upon what we know, okay, if we know that Steve Cohen, of all motherfuckers, was not willing to go above $157.5 for Carlos Correa, mm -hmm. okay, which is surprising when you consider what he has done financially, okay? I totally understand the Giants not wanting to spend whatever it was, 13, 350. 360, on, yeah. 360 yeah. on Carlos Correa, right? With what we know now. Now, maybe Correa's career makes that look like a good deal. Look, it would mm -hmm. have been a good deal, mm -hmm. okay? And the Giants rue their mistake. But based upon what we know now, there's no way you can give him that contract. Yeah, there, right? there is clearly some risk associated. There is, there is something right. wrong. There is something wrong. Right. And the Giants saw it and they said, we need some time to figure out what the hell this is. Time that the Mets got three weeks of to try and figure it out. And when the Giants asked for time, Scott Boris said, no, no I'm time. I'm going to call Steve Cohen. I'm calling yeah. Steve Cohen. Yeah. And so at that point, the Giants had two options, right? The Giants could either hand a check for, you know, 350, 360, or they could say, we're not getting into this. We're done. And they likely made the right move when they were given those two options. Mm -hmm. And I just, we were harsh on them, as were mm -hmm. a lot of other people. And I just would like to formally apologize to the Giants for um, for bashing them here on this show <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Now, failing to get Aaron Judge, you're that... You, that's real. You that's, that's different, but I don't know. I know. If it was, what, what was more likely? There's what was more, what would have been better? I don't know. Um, I, sure, the Giants ended up in, in, a, in a not as good place, but but like I said before, like I, I do think that, and, and everyone could, oh, the, the Twins sucked with Corey last year, and, and all the Guardians fans re responding to the Twins tweet, like, ha-ha, like, you guys suck. Like, okay, like, that's fine. I'm not saying the Twins are a perfect team. I still think this team is definitely good enough to still win this division. I do believe that. It is going to take a lot of luck and a lot more help than last year. Um, but with Correa there, like, they are in a much, much stronger position. And uh, that's why they should be extremely happy today, no matter what the hell his ankle looks like in 2029. All right, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our special guest, Henry Davis. And then we'll talk to you at the end uh, of the show about some other moves. Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick hosts the SiriusXM original podcast, Black Diamonds. The Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Hear stories of the leagues and legends that shape sport, culture, and society. That's why the museum is so important. It's like, we are never going to forget you. Episodes of the award-winning Black Diamonds are now available wherever you get your podcasts. We're not talking about balls and strikes. We're talking about your life. Hello and welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That is Jordan Schusterman. And two of the people on this Zoom call played high school baseball. And one of them is not Jordan Schusterman. We are joined 
by the 2021 number one overall pick and a friend of the show, Pittsburgh Pirates catching prospect Henry Davis, or as we call him, Hank D. Big Hank, how you doing, man? Good. Thank you for having me. Uh, does anybody call you Hank? Is that uh, Henry? We've seen a lot of variations. Is anyone anyone calling you Hank? Yeah, it's it's picking up. It's picking up. You <laughs> prefer up. you prefer Hank, or we prefer Henry? No, I've been called Henry my whole life, but it doesn't bother me either way. So we're going to start in a very obvious place. So you know, when we were prepping for the show, we were, we were doing some background research on on you, and one of the things we discovered uh, is we we Google mapped your high school field. Okay. Mm. Fox Lane High School up in Westchester. And one thing we noticed is that there is a body of water behind the right field fence. A couple of questions. Number one, is it a pond, a lake, or what would you define it? And two, did you ever hit a, a splash hit into that pond? It was, a, it was a pond, and I think once in a scrimmage, but no. I, was, I didn't hit too many homers in high school. Okay, so was it something I know is a right-handed hitter? You know, you've certainly developed some impressive opposite field power. But at the time... They, this was not like an obvious target for you. No, I was I was very much just worried about hitting the ball at the time. The the opposite field homer was not not a bullet I had. It was not in the bag. It was not a club in the bag. Did did you ever see anyone kerplop one? Oh yeah, lefties could do it. Lefties could do it. So it was like a target for for very specific kinds of hitters. Did, did, did the pond have a name? I mean, is, is it is it was it known as like a specific target during the high school season? No, I don't. I, don't, I, I wish we had something cooler, but I don't think so. <laughs> it's so funny, right? Because like Jordan, when I think about hitting a home run into a body of water, I think about San Francisco, mm-hmm. and it's like such a big league thing to like hit a homer into a body of water. And the idea that a bunch of you know relative schlubs up in Westchester were just aiming for a splash hit is very, very funny to me. So Henry, you mentioned that at the time you were just trying to make contact with the ball. Mm-hmm. Expand on that a little bit. What do you mean? Because now you're a professional baseball player. And I would say that most pro players have higher aspirations than touch the ball. Yeah. I think I hit like 250 as a freshman in high school. Like I was not, it took me a while to, to kind of throw into a good baseball player. So I was mm-hmm. I was terrible for a long time, but you kind of kept at it. Terrible for a long time, and that's maybe a good transition to to something that we we love to ask players of of all you know journeys, whether they were number one pick, whether they were thirtieth round pick, is like when did you know you were not terrible anymore? Specifically for you, like at what point you know you go to Louisville and, and you, you you know you play pretty quickly there, and then of course well, you, time out, time out, yeah. time out. You're skipping something here. No, I know. Okay. I, oh yeah, I'm just what, saying that like. You don't go from bad high school freshman to playing at Louisville. Like that's, <laughs> that's not- true. That's that's a good point. So yeah, when, when during high school where you're like, I'm not terrible anymore. This is great. Yeah. So I was pretty good for like our town. Like I was like one of the better players in our town. But the way baseball is nowadays, there's just so many travel teams and whatnot. I remember I was like 13 and 14. You start going on these travel teams, and I'm like, I'm hitting last or like not playing. I was like, these, these guys are better than me. Um, but I worked at it and I worked, worked pretty hard at it. And that's like the same, I think I was 14 or 15 as a freshman in high school. So, I mean, you kind of get that awakening of like, okay, like I was good for my town, but I'm not good in the grand scheme of things. Um, and freshman you're playing against 18 year olds. And I was like, I, I grew late. Like, I think I was like six foot, 150 pounds as a freshman in high school, maybe, maybe soaking wet. Um, so I kind of, I grew into my body a little bit, but yeah, as I, like my senior year of high school, I started coming into my own and then even my freshman year at Louisville was still working some things out, but yeah, it was, it was a process for sure. What convinced you to stick with it? Is it as simple as you didn't have any other hobbies? Is it, you just loved the game of baseball? Like, no, I, I, I mean that, right. Cause for some people it's like, this is just the thing you do. That's like what defines you as a kid, right? I just didn't have another option. Like I never considered it, honestly. Yeah. Like I just like when when I was one of the worst players on the field, it didn't like go through my head to like stop. It's just like okay, I just got to figure out what I have to do to be one of the best right. players. And, and like you said, like right, that was the goal was to just to keep playing. Right. It seems like you were like I want to be good enough to keep playing. When you're, you know, the freshman playing against 18 year olds, you're not thinking, I want to be the number one pick. Maybe you are. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm curious when it transitioned to, 
oh, I am figuring this out. I am seeing that I've gotten bigger, I've gotten stronger, I'm facing better competition, I'm surviving, if not exceed, you know, exceeding and, and, and thriving, not just surviving. When did it start to transition to, oh, well, I'm, I actually got a shot here to be more than just able to stick around and play on the team? I didn't, I didn't have too many people. And like it, it was rare for people in my area to like play D1 baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't even process the draft until like I think I got a letter from the Reds like my senior year of high school. And I was like, it's like a questionnaire. And I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Um, like in the mail? Yeah. Like you came home from school one day. They're like, you're like, they know who I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and they would run, they would run events. Um, but I didn't feel like it was an, I didn't consider it an option. I just felt like Louisville was the next step. I got some interest my senior spring because I, I gained some weight and started hitting for some power. Um, but I don't know. It was really, it was really processed and it was so gradual that there wasn't like a, a moment where I was like, Oh, like this is it. Like there wasn't like a, event or anything but it was yeah just a process there wasn't like so then you do you get to louisville and now it's like you've gone because that transition too because you you mentioned you you kind of developed a lot you know late senior year you realize okay i can do it i'm gonna go play d1 baseball but now you're just in the acc which is a huge let alone for you know we'll get to pro ball now you're playing acc baseball which is probably immediately uh, a huge jump over anything you ever saw in high school so was there a moment like that when you're facing some other top draft pick as a freshman well, or something like, like that that you and, remember yeah, like how do you adjust to the velo as a hitter because you know in new york most kids are throwing like 86 right yeah you can so I, I adjusted to the velo faster than I adjusted to catching it. Like, I remember my first scrimmage, I was catching, like, I went from, like, the kids on my team, like, I was the only kid my senior year. I think we had one other guy go play at Iona. Um, but I was, like, like there's nothing serious catching-wise. And then on my first scrimmage, I'm catching Bobby Miller doing 97-mile-an-hour sinkers, and I, like, cannot catch the ball. Like, I'm just literally, like – barely trying to keep it in front of me like i have no idea what's going on um so that was a process in itself um that's so funny too though wrote right because like bobby is not indicative of the average division one pitcher and so like you show up to campus you're like is this good is this everybody like do i have to do this all the time Oh. Yeah, you're like I remember I remember at some point during my freshman fall, we had a pretty good team at Louisville, but I think somebody who I hadn't faced before was coming in and I was like asked like my teammate, I was like, Oh, how hard's he throw? And he was like, Oh, not that bad, just like eighty nine, ninety. And I was like, Since when is that since when is that not gas? But yeah, that was it was, it was an adjustment period for sure. Hey, at least at least you missed the birdie bros. The birdies would have been that would have been a, a very unpleasant experience, but but Bobby Miller is is quite a, a transition. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it is so funny how much we talk about how you adjust as a hitter. But I always wonder, even at the big league level, and we can talk. I, we want to ask you about just the rigors and insanity that is catching is literally catching this stuff and that we expect catchers in the big leagues now, you watch the stuff that's being thrown, not just the velocity and the movement on, on fastballs, but but off-speed stuff as well. And people are just spiking 90-mile-an-hour sliders in the dirt and you're just expected to do something about that. I have to imagine that that, that was like, Jake mentions, oh, you know, how do you know to stick with it? Was there a point there where you're like, I don't know if I, like, why did you want to keep being a catcher? Because that part just seems so unpleasant. I don't know. I just always loved it. Like I, I started catching when I was like the first time it was like regular, like not coaches pitching. I just started catching and I just loved it. And like every, like when I envisioned myself as a player, it's just always been as a catcher and I love that role and I love everything that comes with it. So again, just like, just like when I was doing poorly, like I didn't see like the end of the road. It was the same thing with catching. I was just like, Oh, like I'll, I'll just figure it out. Like whatever I got to do, I'll do it. Do you what is the what is the best thing about catching? Now that you, again you've you've loved it, it's all you've known as a baseball player. And what is the worst thing about catching? The actual 
job. I know you love it. It's not like it's going to change you wanting to be a catcher, but obviously there's some parts of it that just seem like it sucks. So (laughs) I want to answer like half of that, Jordan. The worst part about catching that Henry does not have to deal with now that he's a pro baseball player is how your gear smells. (laughs) True. True. Yeah. Is that you? Can you confirm you don't have to have smelly gear anymore? No, not the. I mean, yeah, we we can wash it whenever. I guess I could have done that in high school too, but it just doesn't cross a sixteen-year-old's mind. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, what would you say as far as the the physical demands of catching? What is the part where you're like, man, this is this is not a fun time versus like I love this part of catching. Well, definitely foul tips. Foul tips suck. Mm-hmm. Like you can like if you if you miss the block and it bodies you up like you just like you wear it but that's your fault like you you catch a foul tip to the cup and you just you're just sitting there for a few minutes like running through like yeah is this, is this the spot I want to be but no um, I think the best part is just like the the impact you can have on winning like you can you have a you have a pretty big role just from like I mean you got the same amount of at bats as everybody else and you can you can really influence the game behind the plate if you know what you're doing and you do your homework and you care about the the pitcher on the mound so that I mean that's definitely my favorite part like it it really is a special feeling like in college I didn't call all the pitches once in a while I would but like there were a couple times this year you go like CG shutty like and even if it's a bunch of pitchers going it's the best feeling like just putting up a zero and being like man like we really executed our game plan today and feeling like you went into that day prepared and like communicated well with the pitcher and get a win. Like that's huge. Like you could go over four and just like, yeah, like that guy did a good job today. Like that was a win. Yeah. And that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was just saying too, cause like you, you mentioned how were you first like, holy shit, how am I physically going to catch Bobby Miller? But once you get past that, it's got to also be fun to catch the best stuff in the world, especially now that you're in pro ball and you get to see you have the best possible view for just unbelievable shit at all levels of minor leagues. And then soon, hopefully in the major leagues, like that's also just got to be so fun to, to, to witness. And then obviously be a direct part of. Yeah. And I, I had a, I had a pretty good staff. I mean, I think our opening weekend rotation in Louisville in my freshman year was like Reed Detmers, Bobby Miller, and Brian Helling, who's in the big leagues for the Marlins. Like, it was, I mean, it was a legit staff catching as an 18-year-old too. So mm-hmm. it was good. But, yeah, that's de- it's definitely a fun aspect. And it's a lot better when you're facing somebody or like you're catching somebody and you're like, yeah, like this guy's, this guy's nasty and I don't have to face him because he's on my team. I want to turn the clock back a second to the draft, but more about the like after the draft, because there is something undeniably cool about being the number one overall pick, right? I'm sure that when that was something that you learned, you were amped, right? And that's both the bonus stuff and just the, you know, the, that having that attached to your whole life, there's a level of pride there that you earn that at what point after the draft, does that wear off where you show up and you are just like anybody else you're playing on the field against other guys who aren't the number one overall pick. And at that point, it's just, we go out and play. When does that like, is it the next day? Is it the next week? Is it the next month? When does it go from being like, wow, to eh, whatever. I'm, I'm just another ball player. Yeah. I think the first time you get like in the box, like in a game, whether you're catching or yeah. hitting, um, nobody cares. Like I was right. facing, I was facing a kid. My first at bat was at the the Rays place down here, um, and just FCL game noon. Nobody like nobody cares. Like you're just a regular dude trying to trying to have a good at bat off this guy, and he doesn't want you to get a hit, and you want to get a hit. So he doesn't really care if you're hitting first, second, third, where you're picked in the draft. If you're Latin, if you're American, or I mean, whoever you are, it doesn't really matter to them. Um, so yeah, once you start playing, like there was a, there was some lingering stuff. Like I got drafted, I went home, I went to Pittsburgh, um, did a couple things there. And then you get to the complex and like the first few days there, you're not really doing baseball activity. Like if you're still running, you do stuff. And then the second, the second baseball activity kicks up. You're just another, another player. We're always curious for the guys, especially they play in college and especially when you play in the ACC and you're on TV every weekend and you go to these, you know, 
legitimately intense environments. And then suddenly you mentioned you're playing a noon game on the backfields in front of zero people. How is that adjustment like? And I know in the Myers, once you get into full season ball, you start to have crowds again, but it's maybe not as intense and the stakes don't feel as high. Was that also something you had to get to? Or are you, you're enough of where it's like, I don't need to be amped up by the crowd. Like I'm going to be fully focused. I've never, I've never felt influenced by a crowd. Like I remember, I mean, I was fortunate to play in the college world series and I think mm-hmm. it's almost 30,000 again, mm-hmm. as a kid, basically. And I remember we were playing Vanderbilt and like in the eighth inning, somebody's like, I'm like just standing there and we're talking about a new pitcher coming in. Somebody's like, man, like that whistler won't stop. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, the whistler, like he's been going all game. And I was like, dude, like, like what whistler? And I like, I paid attention to it and I heard it, but I hadn't heard it the whole game. And I think that's part, part of me being a little oblivious and just like being in my own world and like having enough, having enough responsibilities I'm trying to juggle is hitting and catching um but i've never i've never noticed like a crowd or whatnot like i didn't i don't think i felt differently in that game than i did in the fcl game like you're still like you're up there your job's the same you're trying to win the game so i'm so envious that you don't hear the vandy whistler like the yeah. rest of us are living in this hell <laughs> right even and, on and tv are you kidding you're so you're, locked in it's almost it's, worse it's almost worse on television. By the way, there are some people listening who have no idea what we're talking about. Just Google Vandy Whistler. You'll know. You'll know, unfortunately, very fast uh, what we are all referring to. But that is a, that is a great that is a great uh, anecdote. So you know, you 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 mentioned you go you debut in the FCL, and then you know you're usually your draft year. You're not going to get too much time. I know you went to Greensboro briefly. This season, uh, we actually got to see you in spring training before uh, before the season, and I know Jake was there when you faced Kenley Jansen. Uh, in spring training this year during a backfields game. And so what was what was that first first big league spring training first spring training at all, right? Of course. So so tell us tell us about that that experience because I know there was a, a, an interesting few at bats. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he was disgusting and it was it was like fun to face a big league. Like you felt like you couldn't lose. Like it, I mean, <laughs> dude my, dude's probably going to be a Hall of Famer and you're just up there and like I mean, just trying to swing if you see it so i don't know it was like his first outing of the whole spring and like i think you were the first guy he faced yeah i literally i remember the so the minor leaguers are wearing like gray pants like i think everybody just gets gray pants and all of a sudden like they're just like a minor league spring training game you just have no idea who's pitching like you don't know if they're throwing like you just you can only know lefty righty and like how tall they are basically and whatever they glove sign in between and like the warm-up pitches um and all of a sudden this monster of a human being starts walking over in like white pants and like some of our team was like dude like is that kenny jansen like, is, is that kenny and i was like I, I don't know i'm like taking my shins off running running to go hit it was pretty cool and I knew, I knew 100%, like, I wasn't going to take a pitch because it's Kenley Jansen on the backfield. Like, the ball could be two feet outside. I'm probably getting rung up. So, just swing the bat. And he hits you. Yeah, but, I mean, he, he nicked my elbow guard. But, yeah. <laughs> well, hold on. Let, let's say this, though. Uh, we mentioned, you know, the beating you take as a catcher. You have also developed quite a reputation, for better or for worse, as an HBP magnet. I believe you were hit 20 times this year in just 50-something games. Now, this is something that has been proven to be some level of skill at the major leagues with guys uh, like Tim LaCastro, I know Mark Canna, and then Ty France is, is known now at the, the, at the biggest level, you know, a lock for 25 plunkings a year. Uh, was this something you, you know, your stance sort of uh, hints at this, but, I mean, you, have you always been, been getting hit like this? Because it doesn't look like a good time. No, I have not. And it was it was something I'm trying to figure out. And we kind of played with some different things. Like, I remember I, in one of the folly games, I just like, I was like, okay, like, I'm going to, I mean, it's the folly. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to be a good big leaguer. It's not going to be the worst thing in the world if I go over four today. And I stepped off the plate and I got hit in the ribs twice. And it was like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I don't know what I need to do more. Um, it, fortunately, in, the, in Altoona, I didn't really get hit a lot. And when I got hit, I got hit by breaking balls. And I remember I was talking to some of our staff and I was like, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I got to do. Like I'm open to any suggestions and like, dude, like it's going to be better as you go up higher levels. Like dudes won't hit you unless they want to. And I was like, okay, like it's reassuring for sure. Um, 
but yeah, it was a, a part of this season that was not my favorite. But like you're I not mean, trying to get beat, right? Like you're right. That's no, the thing. But yeah. it's so weird. I mean, and forgive me for for suggesting that you are because. Like you mentioned, like you you actively tried to not, and then you got hit seven more times in the fall league. I mean, like. well, I didn't, I didn't, I had got hit. So my first step out of the fall league, I got hit by like a backflip slide or something. Like just, yeah. I mean, that's like you're like whatever happens. Yeah, it's gonna hit me in the ankle guard or something. Like who cares? Yeah. Um, and then, like a few games later, I didn't get hit, but the catcher dropped the ball, and the ump was like time take your base and i was like <laughs> what and the guy was like that hit you and i was like sure it did i think i had two strikes <laughs> just tossed about and i was like sounds good <laughs> um <laughs> went to first and then i think i got hit like one more time actually but it was like a breaking ball and then like the last two games i got hit three times and it was like all like like missile heaters like one of them was like a 3-0 count too and i just took it square in the back and i was like dude that wasn't like it wasn't even close like you're not trying to throw a strike uh, oh man yeah so you you've been going through it you'd think the foul tips were enough punishment but it, it seems like you are really really going through it um i, I you, you mentioned the uh, completely blown call there I, that's just a weird transition but we have to ask about the falling experience from the rules standpoint, particularly the challenging the balls and strikes call. Now we're going to be talking about a, we're going to talk about that uh, more in, in upcoming episodes as we you know preview the rule changes for the season. I know this is not something that's going to be in Major League Baseball this year, but for those of you who don't know or you haven't even heard about this, tell us about the challenge system with balls and strikes and and they tested on the fall league this year. So it's a it's a custom zone for each hitter. In and out doesn't change, obviously, but it's like a percentage of your height. And there's a system calculating it. And I think when they first started doing it, they told so we had a big Zoom call about this and they explained it to us. So I'm, I might not have all the information, but they essentially said the zone, when it was having a bunch of issues, they were reading it from the front of the plate. So it would like like anything that would clip it, like there'd be balls in the dirt um that would like just literally be unhittable but would be called a strike they moved it back to read at like a certain point like almost near the like i think between the middle of the plate and the back of the plate and we had it for the first few games but it's challenges like it's not every pitch like the the catcher catching a ball like crazy um like as a guy misses his spot you didn't get the people like getting rung up on those. It would be like the borderline call and there's accountability. And I think that's all people enjoyed was like one, like I remember I'm catching and a hitter started complaining about a call. And I was like, no, 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 like don't complain, like challenge it. Like if you want, if you want to, if you want to say something, challenge it, like go ahead. And the kid didn't do anything. And he just was like, okay, like move on to the next pitch. And then there's also hmm. like the like the umps were phenomenal. Like it was crazy. And I remember talking to a few of them and just saying, like, yeah, like the feedback is great. Like this, like being able to evaluate ourselves in game, like on a daily basis, like I they did a really great job of calling balls and strikes. Like I was talking to Nick Gonzalez in the cage the other day, and I like we both I, I don't think I got a call that I disagreed with the entire time. And Nick overturned one um, and like won it. And it's just like, I think if that was in the big leagues for like a year or two, they would just like umpires would be like incredible. Like I think mm -hmm. the, I think the feedback is kind of the missing piece because all umps are going to have a little bit different of a zone and the consistency of, like I'm a hitter and knowing this is going to be a called strike every time, or this is going to be like, and if it's not, we can just question it. Cause I'm some missed calls. Just like, like I'm a hitter. I'll lock up on a pitch. Like nobody's perfect, but putting a little bit of a help in there rather than just completely resorting to the ABS, I think keeps, keeps the traditional aspect of the game in the game with also like being as good as we can be. It takes away like egregiously terrible 
calls by umpires behind the plate, but it also allows for the art of framing, of pitch framing, to continue to be a part of baseball and doesn't completely drastically change the way the game is played at the big league level. What was the process of actually challenging? Like if you wanted to, like, do you, there's no flag, obviously. Like, how does that work? They would tap their, they would tap their hat or their helmet, or I would just turn around and say challenge. Um, I got one right in um, Bradenton. They were doing it in Bradenton. And I just like, I knew the ump had like, like it was a tough call where, so imagine like a lefty is hitting and I want to set up inside. And I think Salamita was pitching. He's one got a tough slot, but when he misses his spot away, the ump can't see the ball. Like it's behind me and it's a really tough call. And imagine being the hitter. <laughs> seriously. But if you guys like people don't appreciate how hard being an ump is on some of those, like you're like you were trying to make the same reaction as we are in that period of time. And it like I didn't catch it well because it was all the way to my side. And I it was a missed spot, but I was like, I, I think that was a strike. And so I just was like challenged and we got it right. Um, and it's good feedback for him too. Like these are young umpires in low A who want to make it to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. Like him knowing for next time, like, okay, that's a strike. Like it, it helps all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so it sounds like, so you did have some of those in the fall league and yeah, I, I, I love it because it is a compromise between full robo umps. This is, you know, taking it completely out of the umps hands but also having accountability and feedback like you described. And that's why I love it. And I, I, I do hope, I mean, obviously we're not going to get it this year, but I, it seems very feasible that with the right tweaks that we could have it in the big league soon. And I think as you, and it clearly like, again, this isn't necessarily true with all the new rules, but like players like this. And I think you can understand it too. And as a catcher, it's valuable insight. And, and it's as someone who's directly interacting with umpires, you clearly see the value in it too. Right. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I, it's, I think it's different if there was an option because there wasn't really an option. Um, like even like the clock rules this year, like I think a, a big leaguer might have a different opinion of me than in the minor leagues. They're just like, Oh, like you're going to do this and you're going to like it. We're like, okay. <laughs> right. Well, what am I going to say? Yeah. 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 Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, that's, that is a different, a slightly different, more meta conversation about all the rules and how they've been implemented, but we'll save those for another time. You did mention uh, one of your teammates there, Anthony Solomito. Um, he's a name that, that, that jumps out, but, but one of the last things we wanted to ask you about just as, you know, a, a lot of fans will say this, Oh, Henry Davis, who's number one pick pirates. Uh, they haven't been good, whatever. You have one of the best insights into the kinds of talent that the Pirates do have coming up. I know we started to see it at the big league level recently with guys like O'Neill Cruz, and he's, he's in a whole other category. But as far as guys that you've already played with throughout your first uh, year or so in the Pirates organization, whether it's pitchers that you've caught, whether it's hit, uh, hitter teammates, whether they're first round picks or 15th round picks, who are some of the guys that stand out that you are especially excited to kind of come up with um, and, and make an impact on, on the Pirates at the major league level soon? Yeah, I, I was fortunate, and one of the one of the like silver linings of this past year, and spending a little bit too much time on the IL or a lot of too much time, was like I, I was at the different affiliates, um, so I got to see a lot of it, and it's really impressive to see like the depth in our in our organization. Like, I know that like fans one they're paying attention to the actual big league team as they should, but um, oh, like there's a ton of guys that might not get the attention as like, like you said, like it's great to be considered like a prospect. Obviously that's nobody's goal. Um, but there's a lot of guys who aren't on those lists that, I mean, are phenomenal. Like you could go to like any backfield game and watch a dude pitch and be like, wow, like who is this guy? And then the next field, who is this guy? Like it's, it's really impressive the depth we have. And I think that's a kudos to like how hard our guys work and the staff we have going. Big shouts out to John Baker, friend of the show, um, your uh, farm director there. I am curious about you watching the big league team because I remember when the Pirates were in New York playing the Yankees for that series where, you know, everyone was on judge watch. I was like texting you the whole time. Like you were locked in to all those games. So because you were on the IL this year more than you you know would have liked, how much of the big league team were you watching this year? 
I, well, I was watching when I could. I couldn't believe how many blackouts there were. That was crazy. Like, I'd be in North Carolina trying to watch a, a Pirates-Reds game, and I couldn't, even though I have the MLB subscription. So that sucked. But anytime I could, I would watch it. Like, I like that's, that's the goal. And, I mean, obviously I'm in the minor league, so I'm not there yet. But, I mean, I'm as much of a fan as anybody, I guess, of the team, and I really pulled for our players. So watching that was – it was fun. Uh, you mentioned Solomedo. Yeah. Are there any other pitchers that you've caught recently? I know you're, you're down in Bradenton now going to the complex pretty consistently and spring training will start soon. Are there any pitchers, whether they are, you know, the Quinn Priesters of the world that, that everyone already knows about or, or ones that, that stand out over the past year that you've caught that you're like, damn, uh, that is different. <laughs> well, as a catcher, one, so I'll catch a million bullpens in spring training. And I think this is something funny, but my glove broke twice last year in spring training on fastballs the entire time out of like hundreds of bullpens. I caught both Colin Selby. Colin Selby. All right. We love that shout out. I mean, that's a, that's a D three legend right there. So we are, we are big fans. I know he is. Does he still have a giant beard? I know he did last spring training. Yes. Okay. Yes, he does. This is a good, that is a good name. That is a good name. Uh, yes. Colin Selby coming soon to a, to a major league bullpen. I would imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, the velo is just so crazy now that it's just, it's up and down. Like you mentioned, like when you go to backfields, it's, it's very different than 10 years ago. Cause it's just, there's random guys you've never heard of throwing 98. Um, and Colin Selby is a great, great example of that. Well, I, and I think, I think, I mean, Selby sits like 98 and I think his fastball is probably, he'd probably agree with me. His fastball is like his third best pitch. <laughs> like his, his curveball is his best. And I think his slider is the second best mm-hmm. and obviously it can change day for day, but. I mean, there were times last year that it was like we'd be in a pinch and I would just put down six curveballs in a row and it's just unhittable because he's throwing an 85-mile-an-hour 12-6. That's like unbelievable. Henry Davis, uh, we really appreciate the the time you've, you've, you've given us here on Baseball Barbercast. Uh, where, where, like, what are the, what are the goals for 2023? I mean, this is, you know, you'll head to spring. I know you're already down in Bradenton. But like, what are you most excited about uh, for this upcoming season? Playing, oh, <laughs> playing more baseball than you got to play last year. Yeah. Well, I was very, I was very like my body felt phenomenal the whole year. And normally you deal with dings and bruises and this, that, the other thing. And I didn't really have anything bother me. It was just like, I got hit. was trying to play through it. Cause I got promoted three minutes after it. Um, couldn't. And then went on the IL it never healed. Uh, essentially, just like started playing on it, like played terrible for a month, and then got it rechecked out. Found out it was still broken. Missed like eight weeks. Came back and played the last little bit. And I'm fortunate I I got to play that last little bit because I think if I played any longer on it, that would have missed the whole season. Um, but just just playing, just being able to be out there consistently, and you know get better from, from playing, not from watching and, you know, experiment and learn, like, what do I have to do here in the minor leagues to be a successful big leaguer and, you know, then get to Pittsburgh and help the Pirates win in any way I can. So a lot of goals, a lot of different things, but right now I'm just kind of staying, staying in, in the moment. All right. Well, until you get to the big leagues, let's 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 get you that blackout free MLB TV account because we do know it exists and it seems like you deserve it. Um, we'll 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 make sure that that is uh, arranged before the season. Uh, but otherwise, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate the time and, and good luck this season, man. We hope you play a lot of baseball. Me too. Yeah, that's the plan. Buck O'Neill dedicated his life to teaching us about the heroes of the Negro Leagues and demonstrating that you could get further in life with love than you could with hate. Now is our opportunity to say thank you to this legendary man. Join the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as we celebrate Buck's long overdue induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame by supporting our Thanks a Million Buck campaign. It's an effort to raise at least $1 million by fans donating a buck or more in support of the NLBM. Remember, every buck counts. To donate, visit thanksamillionbuck.com. And we're back here at the end of Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Nice to talk to our friend Henry Davis. 
Uh, Henry is a man who is obsessed with being great at baseball, mm-hmm. which is something that neither of us ever were. Uh, <laughs> well, also, I think you can kind of hear it in that last answer there. The dude just wants to play, right? I mean, when you are a, forget, he may not care about being a, you know a top prospect and whatever, but he it's not like he doesn't know what the expectations are, and he has high expectations of himself. And that's the thing about injuries is it's like you you just can't you can't go out and do what you love and do what you are working on all the time. And so I'm very excited to see him get that opportunity uh, this season. And I I have a feeling we'll see him in Pittsburgh at some point uh, by the end of this year. So thank you to Henry for joining us. All right, Jake, we have a few other moves we wanted to get to. Uh, let's start with, I, I think this is really the the biggest news that is not a transaction uh, that, that also came by uh, yesterday, which is that Trevor Story, uh, the Red Sox shortstop, shortstop, the new shortstop for the Red Sox, had uh, what is known as a, a modified Tommy John surgery, not full TJ that, that people like you have to get because they are pitching all the time. But Trevor Story's had elbow issues for the last couple of years. It seems like he thought he could maybe avoid it um, with with rest and whatnot. But as is the case with any form of Tommy John, usually it will come for you at some point. And so he is having surgery or just had surgery recently and will be missing a significant amount of this year, TBD exactly how much, whether it will be the whole season or not. This is yet another chapter. We talked about how the Devers extension, which they had the presser today and the vibes are good, whatever, is like, oh, okay, well, it's a weird but positive ending to the Red Sox offseason. Now we're opening up a whole other can of worms, which is that who the hell is going to play shortstop? Who the hell is going to play second base? Are we moving Kike to short? Like, this is a this is a big deal because for you might look at Trevor Story's numbers and be like, oh, he's not that good. Trevor Story had some really hot stretches last year and is a good, useful, talented baseball player who I think was extremely important if the Red Sox had any chance this season. You get him out of the picture. Now I'm like, I yeah, now we might be finishing last again. Honestly, honestly, maybe that's an overreaction, but I don't know how they are going to replace him. You would have to think they go to the free agent market and pick up either Elvis Andrews or Jose Iglesias to play short for them. Uh, yeah, I don't know who they could trade deal. for. Like, I don't, there's no. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa <laughs> is a hilarious <laughs> trade candidate for them that I'm sure Yankees oh fans God. would love to see. But it is so unfortunate for Chaim Bloom, who, when he took care of the Devers deal, he was probably like, all right, well, at least we're going into opening day with some good vibes. And literally the day before they introduced Devers and his extension, the story news comes out. And you're right. It's a huge deal because the drop off between whomever's going to play short and Trevor's story is big. And I think that the version of the 2023 Red Sox that competes and makes the playoffs included like a three and a half win Trevor story. Totally. If not, if not higher, I mean, a a healthy version of him that's, that's playing good defense. And maybe that was never going to be possible with a busted elbow too, if he was going to be playing short. But now, I mean, you set in this, this kind of domino effect of, and, and the very good Twitter account, which I appreciate Red Sox stats pointed this out. Okay. Kike actually can play short pretty well. That's fine. Although we need to get him back playing offense. Who's going to play second, whatever Christian Royal. You might be rolling out an outfield defense of Verdugo, Yoshida, and Jaron Duran, who's looked lost in center. And like now we're really having some, some trouble here defensively. So they, they are going to have to do something. I mean, I think Elvis Andrews would make sense, but like this is, this is a huge deal. And not to mention what it means offensively. Even more pressure on Yoshida now to be everything and more that they, that they paid him so much money to be. So um, I love Rafi Devers. I think the Turner deal could be good, but... This is this is tough. This is a tough, tough look here. And I think whenever a player gets surgery on something like this at this point of the year, mm-hmm. it's weird, right? Because why didn't you just get it in November or October after the season was over? Mm-hmm. And I go back and forth on that. One side of it is that none of us with a Twitter account or a podcast knows anything about medicine. Okay. We don't know what the shit we're talking about. Unless you're you, unless you're like an orthopedist and you're listening to this pod and you know what you're talking about, that's fine. We don't know. And most Red Sox fans have no idea what's going on inside Trevor Story's elbow. And so I'm inclined to be like, all right, yeah, like you probably needed it. But the other side is like, we know resting your elbow does not help you if you need to get Tommy John or anything like it. We have one. There's been one player that I can think of who rested their arm and didn't need TJ. And that was Masahiro Tanaka, who was a freak. And guess what? 
his elbow is definitely still extremely fucked up. And he's just pitching. <laughs> like, right. I am I am confident that, like, most of the time you're just playing through it or pitching through it. And most of the times that's that's not going to be the case. I um, tore my UCL. Yeah. Okay. Didn't pitch for two years. <laughs> and I still needed surgery. All right. I <laughs> Resting it does not help it. Okay. Yeah. I firmly believe that. It's, it's just so... But again, that's the problem, right? Is like these players, it's their right to decide when they're going to get surgery. And so basically they are all understandably, but frustratingly often too stubborn to get it when they probably should. Right. But again, we don't know. We have no idea. Now, Bloom said today, oh, you know, we we, we saw that in the season. We did not think it was going to be an option. When we signed it, we didn't think it was going to be a problem. And like, maybe that's all true. And maybe this is, so that's the thing. We don't know. The point is, is there is a, there is a long trend of hearing baseball player tried to rest it, but he still needs Tommy John. That has happened so many times so that when it happens in the middle of the off season, when it's like, dude, you should have gotten this two months ago. Maybe you wouldn't miss all season. You can understand fans being frustrated. At least his ankle's okay. Let's move on to another uh, news item in the American League East with the Toronto Blue Jays signing Brandon Belt. First baseman. This is, you tweeted this, Jordan. This is an elite new guy in a new uniform. Weird look. Oh, yeah. And and I mean, he, I probably could have figured out the exact, had to be one of the, the longest tenured players in baseball, right? I mean, we, we've done some Brandon Crawford talk uh, related to Correa, and he's still got another year on his contract. But man, I mean, Brandon Belt has been, has been with the Giants, you know, since 2011, um, you know, drafted in 2009 out of Texas. So it's, he has, he was headed towards being like 2019, 97 OPS plus 31 year old, you know, the splits were bad. And it was like, all right, like this kind of profile kind of eases into irrelevance and out of the league. And then, I mean, his shortened season in 2020 was incredible. And then in 2021, even in 97 games, was one of the best hitters in baseball as part of that amazing Giants team. Injuries, multiple different injuries in 2022 clearly sapped him back to being uh, not so great. But it's hard not to look at the not-so-distant past and be like, there's got to be something here. And for a Blue Jays team that has still been desperate to add left-handed pop, I love this. I mean, this is like a total no-brainer here. As weird it is, is it will definitely look with him wearing a Blue Jays jersey. I think this is a great fit. Now, maybe he's cooked. Maybe he's 35. Maybe he's still injured. But I think he can help them a ton. I, I really like this fit a lot. He overlapped on the Giants with Miguel Tejada. <laughs> just to hurt your head a little bit. Yeah. That's no, how long he was there. It's it's wild. Um, but yeah, I guess he kind of slots in as uh, not necessarily, you know, the everyday first baseman. Um, but he's, I mean, he might be basically the everyday DH now that they've traded a third catcher. If they believe that Kirk is going to be the catcher, I mean, that's really what you're looking at here, which is, which I, I, again, this is a really, a really nice fit. They, they needed to get more left-handed and they did it. And he should crush in that park too. That's the other thing. If he can get, get back to even the 110, 120 OPS plus, just a little bit more slug. Wow. He is going to enjoy the pop flies actually going out of the fence than in Toronto that they were in San Francisco. So. January is a month of dreaming. Mm -hmm. It is a month of looking at the future and painting the best possible version of it. And as I look at the Toronto Blue Jays lineup right now, I see Springer, Bichette, Guerrero, Kirk, Varsho, Chapman, Belt, Merrifield, Kiermaier. And Jordan, I see an American League East title. I mean, is what yeah, that, dude. that is a lineup. Now, the that pitching, is a lineup. Yeah. Has question marks, and you know you can pick it apart in in twelve ways. But but they've that added lineup, to that too, right? I mean, that's that's where the Bassett addition makes a huge difference. Um, and you know you could argue they still need to add another arm or so. I don't really know who that's going to be if that's Ryu in the middle of the season, whatever. Uh, but no, this is this is a hell of a roster. And and listen, let's remember a year ago there was a ton of Blue Jays World Series hype and whatnot, and they they had a great season, and, and we know how it ended. But um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a sexy lineup. That's, that's Whit Merrifield I've, in the eight hole is like a pitcher's worst nightmare. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so anyway, uh, but that's but that's I, I I love this movement. And listen, who knows? Maybe maybe he's a one year deal, and maybe he's not anywhere close to what he was a couple years ago. But um, I, I think that's a, a really easy fit here. And and also one another example, right? You mentioned these free agents. You joke, right? There's not a lot of top free agents left, and that's true. But when you see kind of fits like this that come together, you're like, oh, shit, like that could actually make a big difference, even if this guy wasn't highly uh, ranked coming into the offseason. 
similar uh, one, although <laughs> maybe not as far as helping a team uh, into uh, upper echelon of championship contention, Marlon signed Johnny Cueto. Hell yeah. Johnny, Johnny Cueto, one of our favorite uh, people in baseball, obviously pitchers to watch. His year with the White Sox was one of the more incredible things to watch um, of, of, of really any pitcher uh, this year where he was giving up more contact than any pitcher in the sport and is, still had a, a extremely impressive ERA. And do the Marlins need pitching? No. But what this does do is give them innings to allow uh, the Marlins to probably trade Pablo Lopez or trade another pitcher and cover those innings and try to get a bat elsewhere. We talked about this yesterday um, uh, off, off air. Like, I don't know what that trade is, um, but I do think it will happen because that's the only way this signing really makes any sense. Um, and, and yeah, so love Johnny Cueto. I'm glad he will still be pitching. He could also, especially in that park too, I mean, that dude could just have a, you know, a 3-1 ERA again, for sure. Uh, I have an absurd take. All right, let's hear it. Johnny, Johnny Cueto All-Star? What? <laughs> Johnny Cueto All-Star? Yeah. Uh, either, well, there are two takes here. There's there's Johnny Cueto starts a playoff game for someone else. And then there's Johnny, the one I really feel is Johnny Cueto is going to pitch for another six seasons. <laughs> like, Johnny Cueto yeah. is about to pull off this late, a late career renaissance. And we never know when these guys are going to do it, right? If you look at every pitcher at age 36, 37, you would bet against every single one of them to pitch until they're like 43, okay? But some of them do. Very few, but some of them do. There are Rich Hills out there, okay? We didn't know that Rich Hill was going to be this when he was 37. We didn't know that uh, Jamie Moyer, maybe we did with Jamie Moyer, (laughs) but you get my point, right? You never know who the players that are going to last a long time are when they're young. But there's just something about Cueto to me, man. He just smells right. I agree. I agree. And maybe he can bounce around a bunch of other teams uh, and, and start <laughs> towards Rachel Edmund Jackson territory. But but it, it's fun. And, and I'm just I'm just curious because I would say that outside of a Brian Reynolds trade, which seems and maybe that's the same trade, although that seems unlikely. Um, there's not a lot of big moves left uh, in this offseason to be made. And so a Pablo Lopez trade could be that. And not, not to overrate Pablo Lopez too much, but that is a really good starting pitcher uh, with two years of control left that uh, could make a big difference for a good team that does not have a good three-starter right now. So we'll see what that looks like. Um, and the Marlins are still doing their best. Uh, but yeah, that, that, is, that is definitely a trade to watch now that they have signed uh, Johnny Cueto. All right. Uh, I think we're going to basically cut it here. Uh, we will, I, I know we, we did this pod earlier than normal in this week, but we will be back uh, next week. Uh, next let's, let's talk about the Tigers moving the fences in next week. We'll see. We'll have some other, uh, you know, we have some, we'll do some emails, baseballbarbercast at gmail.com. Um, maybe we'll do some dead ball Mad Libs. We, we got some more stuff coming, but we have gotten the news now that the Correa is done that we don't we're not waiting on that anymore. So that's good. Um, but yes, yeah, so, uh, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. Thank you to Henry Davis for joining us on baseball Barbercast. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing this episode of baseball Barbercast. And we will talk to you again uh, next week. Jake, keep that, keep that ankle safe. My guy, I'm walking with a big ass boot everywhere I go. Serious XM Podcasts.